the fastest of the six cars that showed up in Times Square February 12, 1908, for the longest, most challenging race history had ever seen, had covered less than 1,000 miles of their 22,000-mile journey by day 11. One car had found the way forward impossible after only 24 hours. The remaining five teams were stretched across the country from New York to Indiana. Mechanical issues, blizzards, snow, ice, ditches, theft, poor roads or no roads, and losing the way had been the biggest obstacles so far. The delays were weighing on everyone's mind. If these early automobiles really were going to drive from New York to Paris, they would have to cross the entire continental U.S., then cut north to cover four and a half thousand miles of Canadian wilderness before finding Alaska, which wouldn't officially be a U.S. state for another 51 years. Then they would have to drive 50 miles or 80 kilometers across the ice of the Bering Strait before becoming the first vehicles in history to drive over the entirety of Siberia. If they missed the ice bridge, there would be no route for an autocrossing, and the ice wasn't going to wait. Join me today for part two of the legendary 1908 New York to Paris auto race. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. If you've enjoyed this bit of history so far, I highly recommend reading the book by Julie M. Fenster called Race of the Century, the Heroic True Story of the 1908 New York to Paris Auto Race. This book was my main source of information for this series, and it's so much fun to read. Fenster's book and my other sources will be cited, as always, in the show notes. By day 13, the three leading teams had made it to Indiana. That was the American Thomas Flyer, the Italian Zeust, and the French de Dion. The German Protos and the French Motoblock were trudging along in Ohio. France had started the race with three teams. After the Césaire had dropped out due to mechanical issues it suffered on its first day, they were down to two. Snow, ice, slush, and the occasional ditch, sometimes seasoned with a spicy fence post or two, were obstacles for everyone. For others, poor morale was creeping up on the list of complications. In the German Protos, Hans Köppen, who led the team, was more and more disliked by the day by his teammates Nape and Moss. All three of the German competitors had to pay their own way in order to enter the race, which ended up costing them each the equivalent of $50,000. Since the start of the race, Köppen's extroverted personality had put him in the headlines, with reporters generally referring to Nape and Moss as his assistants something they did not appreciate. Copen's teammates also felt he wasn't helping as much as he should when it came to the colossal amount of manual labor it took to shovel a car through the snow from New York to Indiana. Moss told a reporter that Copen loved to pose for newspapers, while he and Nape were busy shoveling the car out of ditches. His teammates had decided if they couldn't come together as a team by Chicago, they would leave Copen on his own. The morale in the French de Dion wasn't much better, and for the same reasons. saint Chaffray, captain and nephew of the Marquis de Dion, was constantly butting heads with his teammate Hansen. Another breakdown due to a broken shaft cost the team three days in Indiana, something that didn't ease the tension. But they wouldn't have been able to get that far anyway, because they were currently stuck in the worst blizzard the state had seen in 20 years. The contestants of the 1908 auto race arrived right on time to meet it. The winter storm was so severe in Indiana, it took the American team in the Thomas Flyer 13 hours to travel 7 miles, shoveling snow out of the road the entire way. This increased tensions for the teams who had already started taking out their frustrations on one another. As emotions escalated, the competition grew more sour and less friendly. 
In New York, there had been a kind of agreed-upon expectation of good sportsmanship. Different teams had taken turns driving, helped one another shovel cars out of ditches, and navigated the road together. By Indiana, teams were shoveling snow behind them onto the road in order to slow down their competitors. Soon, the tension would erupt into accusations of cheating. In New York, the going had been undeniably difficult, but every team had been met by mostly well-wishing spectators willing to help pull them out of ditches with teams of horses, give them directions, or even lead them through towns with pilot cars so they wouldn't lose their way. Indiana was a different story. The people of Indiana were happy to help the American car. Everywhere they went, Hoosiers did everything they could to get the Thomas Flyer through the snow. At one point, 14 Clydesdales dragged the Americans over the road with dozens of people shoveling snow around the horses and the wheels of the car. The American Flyer was pulled for miles by horses over the farm fields and snow-covered roads of northern Indiana. According to the rules of the race, each car had to make it to Paris under its own power. When the other teams heard of the Thomas having been aided, the accusations of cheating began. That was until the other teams also had to be pulled over the roads by horses, because there was just no way an early automobile could make it through the winter blizzard of 1908. The Italian Zeust was pulled by a team of 14 horses, then later by a team of 17. The French de Dion also accepted help from a horse team. However, while the people of Indiana were happy to help the Americans for free, they often charged exorbitant amounts before they would help any of the foreign cars. Some refused to help them at all, for any price. Goddard, driving the French motoblock, arguably had the worst time of anyone in Indiana. In Wawaka, he and his team parked their car in a livery stable before spending the night at a local farmhouse. In the morning, when they opened the doors to the livery, everything but the car had been stolen. The authorities in Wawaka were no help, and the team found the townsfolk to be so hostile, they decided to leave despite having nothing but an empty car and the clothes on their backs to take with them. Goddard wrote, quote, The attitude of the town was such that we determined to go ahead despite our lack of every necessity for travel, unquote. But their troubles didn't end there. Unfortunately, the team didn't make it far before they became stuck again in the snow. Like the other teams, Goddard and his motoblock would need to be hauled out by a team of horses. One farmer agreed to pull the motoblock with his horses for $3 a mile. According to Fenster, that was $3 more than the Thomas Flyer ever had to pay, but $5 less than the French de Dion had to shell out. The farmer never showed up with his horses. Tired of waiting and probably thinking he'd been ghosted by another Indiana resident trying to help the American team, Goddard found a different farmer with a different team of horses and made it to Goshen, which was the next town. While there, he was nearly arrested. The first farmer who had never showed claimed Goddard owed him $21, because he said he'd followed Goddard out of town for seven miles. The constable, Constable Dwight, was there to collect the money or to collect Goddard. Goddard called his contact Colonel G.C. Kahn, a Civil War vet who was a current candidate for governor. Kahn told Constable Dwight he'd deal with the situation once the motoblock arrived in Elkhart, which was the next big town. That was fine, as far as the constable was concerned, as he really didn't want to deal with the situation anyway. But Goddard decided to just drive through Elkhart, avoiding seeing the colonel or his judge. Now, Constable Dwight was on horseback, chasing down the French car once again. When Goddard was caught, he surrendered $23.75, enough to cover the angry farmer's claim and give Constable Dwight some reimbursement for the chase. In the end, Goddard would leave Indiana with no possessions and $23.75 paid out to a farmer who didn't help him and a police officer who couldn't find his stolen goods. Indiana was a terrible experience for everyone except the American team. 
The fury of the other teams hit a high when the Americans were allowed to skip driving on the snowbound roads entirely, having been given special clearance to drive over the electric trolley line of the Northern Indiana Railway, which connected the state's cities. When the other teams asked for the same permissions, the president of the railway, E.S. Mulholland, was suddenly nowhere to be found. The other teams were told since they needed permission from the president and no one could find him, they had to stick to the roads covered with seven-foot snowdrifts. Many people, including many Americans, thought the privileges afforded to the American team in Indiana were unfair. However, the Thomas Flyer would not be the only car that covered distance through questionable means. It was merely the first, but let's leave that chestnut for later. One voice that spoke out against the flyer came from Paul Picard, a French-born race car driver in the Great Lakes area. He was selected to escort the cars from Michigan City in Indiana to Chicago, a distance of around 30 miles. When the American Thomas Flyer drove into town with what looked like a two-day lead, Picard told them they would have to wait for the other two leaders, the Italian Zeus and the French de Dion, before he would escort them to Chicago. He believed this was the only way to level the playing field. The Americans decided to leave without their pilot guiding the way, as they didn't want to lose their lead. So Picard sent them on their way in the wrong direction, down a meandering road full of snow, which did shorten the lead the flyer had over the other cars. In the end, the American Thomas Flyer made it into Chicago a day ahead of everyone else but all teams planned on resting in the city a couple of days anyway for some much-needed recuperation, a few scheduled banquets, and car maintenance. There would also be a couple of big announcements in Chicago. The race thus far had not been the grand adventure of glory and excitement the competitors had thought it would be. It had been a grueling, freezing-cold nightmare of snow with fingers frozen to steering wheels, manual labor, cars not cut out for the task before them, and bad company. They were inching their way towards a finish line still 21,000 miles away at the pace of an inebriated tortoise. So, it wasn't fun. It was in Chicago that Mouse and Nape of Copen's German team quit. They told their leader Copen that either he left or they left. Copen said he wasn't going anywhere, so Moss left for Berlin and Nape returned to an engineering career. This meant Copen now had to fund the trip entirely himself. And what made things even more complicated was the fact that he didn't know how to drive. Eventually, through the referral of a friend, Copen found a driver named O.W. Snyder. After being offered a spot in the Protos, Snyder quit his job and helped repair the car, which was in terrible shape after it crawled into Chicago. Copen was now using his life savings and a large loan from his parents to fund the trip. When he and his new driver finally left Chicago, they were a week behind the three leading cars. Copen wasn't the only one to lose a teammate in Chicago. The rift between St. Chaffray and Hansen of the French de Dion team proved too great. Even before Chicago, Hansen had already been having a terrible time in Illinois. According to Fenster, in one town, a farmer had tried to physically assault Hansen because he'd mistaken him for a sewing machine salesman who had swindled him some years before. Then, south of Michigan City, the de Dion became stuck in another snowdrift. Maybe it was the frustration of the situation, the fact that this was the newest of countless drifts they'd already been caught in, or the 1,000-mile drive they'd spent hating one another. Whatever it was, it was at this snowdrift that things finally erupted. Hansen and St. Chaffray screamed at one another. Those screams turned into threats of physical violence and they both decided it was now time for a duel. They both began rifling through the car for their guns when St. Chaffray suddenly declared that Hansen was fired. Hansen then said he quit, and they both decided then a duel to the death wasn't entirely necessary. They parted ways after making it to Chicago, after what must have been an incredibly awkward drive. 
The three leading teams, the Americans, Italians, and French de Dion, left Chicago before the German Protos and the French Motoblock teams arrived. The next state ahead, just across the Mississippi River, was Iowa. If you've ever driven through Iowa, you know what it's like to drive through what feels like America's largest cornfield. Here, the competitors would trade ice and snow for rain and mud, mud so thick they could barely navigate through. Most of the time, the teams were driving over old, rutted wagon tracks. Roberts, driving the American car, had said it would have been easier to make it through Iowa in a canal boat rather than in a car. The going was slow, too. According to Fenster, the American Thomas Flyer was driving 12 hours a day and at an average rate of 7 miles per hour. They were covering about 84 miles per day, or around 135 kilometers. Even the Flyer, which was in the lead, was a week behind schedule, and the ice in the north was melting. The foreign teams were suspicious of American citizens now. Given that the people of Indiana literally tried sabotaging or taking advantage of them, that was perfectly understandable. However, it became clear quickly that the people of Iowa were so excited to have something interesting happen in their state that they would stop at nothing to try and make their state the best 310 miles of the entire journey. In New York and Indiana, teams had their supplies stolen. In Iowa, all cars were given safe garages for the night with 24-7 around-the-clock security. Pilot cars and horses and citizens eager to show them the way met the racers at every possible opportunity. When a car pulled into a town, it didn't matter what country it had come from. The people met it with celebration. Children were let out of school early. People gathered on the curb and cheered. At one point, a crowd had packed so tightly around the Italian car, the manager of a local garage had to turn a hose on them so the Italians could make it through. Even with the warm reception, Walter Williams, a reporter for the New York Times who had been driving with the American team, decided three weeks of misery was enough. The romance of adventure was gone, if it had even existed for him at all. He took a train out of Iowa and headed home. Meanwhile, the hospitality of the people in Iowa couldn't quite make up for the struggles everyone was having on its roads. Every team lost days due to mechanical issues caused by mud and ditches. The Flyer spent an entire day in a muddy ditch. The De Dion lost a week in Cedar Rapids due to suspension issues from the rough roads. The Italians lost two days after one of their wheels fell off. The American Flyer made it through Iowa in the fastest time of four days. According to Fenster, their driver Roberts later said Iowa was not a state at all. It was just one long streak of mud. The Italian Zeust was in second place, trailing the American car. They were given permission from the railroad to drive over the state's train tracks. The Italians, as well as the other teams, had been livid when the Americans had done the same thing in Indiana. It became clear quickly that any team would be willing to take just about any advantage offered to them, even if it was something they had called cheating when it had been done by another team. Just how far a team would go in this regard would be tested relatively soon. When the Americans were leaving Iowa, with the Italians and the French de Dion trailing not too far behind, the French motoblock team was just pulling into Chicago. The day after that, the German Protos arrived as well. There were rumors circling that the two trailing cars so far behind the others were going to ship their automobiles via train to Seattle in order to stay on schedule, which would 100% have been against the rules stating each car had to get to Paris by its own power. Copen of the German team said as much, addressing the rumors as mere hearsay. When the German Protos and French Motoblock left Chicago, they were 1,000 miles behind the leading American car. Before leaving, a race fan had written the word Chicago in huge white letters across the hood of the Protos. From then on, anyone who got a good look at the German car would see the city's name, even if they'd never heard of it. Only 35 miles out of the city, the Protos broke down. 
Even so, the German team soon passed the French motoblock, which was having an incredibly hard time inching through the mud of Illinois. The motoblock didn't have much clearance and just couldn't get through the slush and mud that was constantly piling up at the front, seemingly pushing against it, no matter how much effort they gave it. Goddard, leader of the French motoblock team, decided to ship their car via train from Illinois to Iowa. This was a clear violation of the rules, and when Copen from the German team protested, the race officials in Paris agreed. The moment Goddard and the motoblock arrived in Iowa, they were instructed to put their car back on the train, ship it back to Illinois, and start over again from where they had left off. So, for a time, when the other four cars were heading towards Paris, Goddard and the motoblock were heading in the opposite direction. As the American flyer was charging into the state of Nebraska, St. Chaffray and the Didion were still stuck in Iowa, waiting for a replacement for a cracked frame and a failed driving gear. The repairs took 11 days, giving the Americans and the Italians an even greater lead. In Iowa, St. Chaffray made no point to hide the disdain he held for his former teammate and almost dual opponent, Hansen. He told reporters exactly what he thought of him, and those reporters printed his comments in the papers. St. Chaffray said Hansen was always eating all the food, chasing after women, and asking for money, taking stabs at his character any way he could. Hansen, on the other hand, told the papers nothing but good things about Chaffray, saying he was a good fellow at heart. However, it's debatable as to whether this was how he actually felt. Because, while St. Chaffray was talking to the papers, Hansen was hatching a plan. After St. Chaffray fired him near Chicago, he left for Buffalo, New York, to discuss the race with the owner of the American Thomas Company, E.R. Thomas. Thomas agreed to give Hansen a seat in the American Thomas Flyer. He got on a train and met his new team in Omaha, Nebraska. Hansen was now in the lead with an 11-day advantage over the man who had fired him. Wow. If Hansen had eaten all the food, he was giving it back to St. Chaffray now as a giant, cold helping of revenge. Omaha, Nebraska was a highlight on the trip, especially for the Americans who were the first to arrive. Here, they got to meet Colonel William F. Cody, better known as Buffalo Bill. At this point in history, Buffalo Bill and his Wild West shows were huge. According to Fenster, his shows were entertaining 6 million people a year. Not only did the team get to dine at a banquet with one of America's biggest celebrities, they were all given brand new cowboy outfits before getting to spend the evening roller skating at the city's roller rink. Ansi, to keep their two-day lead ahead of the Italian Zeust, the team left early the next day. The weather and geography of Nebraska proved much more forgiving than any other state so far. Here, Roberts showed everyone why their car was called the Flyer. According to Fenster, they zoomed across the 500 miles of frontier in just over three days. It had taken them four days to cross the 310 miles of Iowa. For the first time, the Flyer really did get to fly. The Italians were still in Iowa, chugging over the train tracks as the Flyer entered Nebraska. The mud had become so impossible, they said if they hadn't been allowed to drive over the tracks, they would have been forced to turn back. When the Italians finally made it to Omaha, they received just as great of a reception as the Thomas Flyer had. Here, they were also able to get some much-needed repairs. Since New York, the other teams had continuously been plagued by mechanical failures, However, the flyer was enjoying hundreds of miles free of breakdowns. And when the going became difficult, their mechanic, George Schuster, was always there, ready and able to save the day. However, the American team was about to change. 
It was in Cheyenne, Wyoming, that their driver Roberts left for the Grand Prix of 1908. This had always been the plan, and his leaving was expected, but Roberts was sad to go, and Schuster equally wistful about his departure. A new driver, E. Lynn Mathewson, would take over through Wyoming to Ogden, Utah. Then another professional driver, Harold Brinker, would take over from there. For Roberts, however, it didn't matter who was driving. He believed the Thomas Flyer would win, not because of its drivers, but because of its mechanic. Before leaving, Roberts said, quote, You may just say for me that the man who will take this car at Cheyenne will take her through to Paris a winner. That man is neither Brinker nor Mathewson, but George Schuster, who knows as much as any of them and has been with the car from the start. This is official. Unquote. The two of them had started the race as strangers, but parted as friends. Schuster wasn't happy Roberts was leaving. He was now the only person in the American car who had been in the race from day one, and he wasn't getting much for participating. There was no grand prize at the end of this thing for the winner. Schuster wasn't the nephew of a marquee or a professional race car driver or the owner of an auto company. He was a mechanic, one of 21 children born to a blacksmith. He'd left a wife and a young child at home to compete in this race, and he missed them. He'd been given 24 hours notice, a promise of $50 a month on top of his salary at the Thomas Company, and a guarantee that his job would be safe for his entire lifetime, as long as the Thomas Company existed. It sounded like a good deal for this blue-collar worker. But now, he was tired, his friend was leaving, and the dynamics were changing. In Cheyenne, he nearly quit. He didn't want to be just the mechanic anymore. He wanted for himself what this race was giving everyone else. Opportunity. He wanted to drive. With assurance from Roberts that the Thomas was doomed without Schuster, the Thomas Company agreed to let him drive, at least part of the way, and gave him the title of captain, though they didn't bother telling that to the other team members. But that didn't matter. Behind them was 2,000 miles of rough road, ditches, snow, mud, and wagon trails. Ahead was 20,000 more miles of the unknown, starting with the vast wilderness of Colorado, guarded by the snowy, stoic, and unforgiving sentinels that are the American Rocky Mountains. The Americans were about to get high, and not in a fun way. They had made good progress over Wyoming and Nebraska, and were now the only car on schedule. The plan for everyone now was to reach San Francisco, California, from there, the cars would be ferried to Seattle, Washington, then loaded on a ship called the Santa Clara, where on April 1st, they would be shipped to Valdez, Alaska. From there, they would drive partway through Alaska, then over the ice to Siberia. Unless, of course, the ice had grown too thin on the Bering Strait, in which case the cars would fall through and they would all drown. But that was another problem for another day. Now it was pedal to the floor for April 1st and San Francisco. The other cars were trailing, the Italians by four days and the motoblock by two whole weeks. In terms of time, that was a huge problem. The two slowest cars didn't think they could make the April 1st departure date and asked the race committee in Paris if they could ship their cars at least part of the way in order to ensure they'd make it in time for the ice. The answer from Paris was a firm no. The Italians were gaining ground, zooming through Nebraska as effortlessly as the Americans had days before. Their driver, Sertori, a man who once drove for 30 hours without stopping, was determined to take the lead. Conversation in the car was limited, but the team was of one mind, all of them committed to one thing and one thing only, victory. Sertori wrote, quote, Ordinarily, we are quite taciturn in the car. We do not feel any need for speech or exchanging ideas. Each day's journey is like a great parenthesis across which the brain of each of us rides alone. We have one single point of contact, one common sentiment, one common need to push forward. 
For the rest, we remain almost estranged and indifferent to each other. Each one of us lives upon his reveries and illusions. Each thinks his own thoughts. Scarcely half a dozen words are exchanged in a day, and they are the words which belong to the journey and to the car. Unquote. They were now three days behind the Thomas Flyer. Hansen, who joined the Flyer in Nebraska, was already butting heads with the Flyer's new teammate, Matheson. In Wyoming, the Flyer started gaining altitude as it headed into the mountains. Matthewson decided to ship all supplies not immediately needed by the team in order to lighten their load and make ascending the mountains easier on the car. Matthewson wrote, quote, I decided to ship all excess baggage onto Rollins, and the car was stripped of all unnecessary weight, the only exception being the fatted Captain Hansen, who may be a good man for Siberia, but here it is a case of everybody works but Hansen. He sits around all day. Unquote. While the flyer was climbing its way through Wyoming, St. Chaffray with the French de Dion was still awaiting car parts for repairs in Iowa. Even with his long wait, he was still ahead of the two lagging teams, which were just now entering Iowa. Charles Goddard in the French motoblock was currently in last place. It was in his nature to be optimistic, and even though he was trailing the leader by a thousand miles, he decided to stay unperturbed. Plus, he'd just received word from the police in Indiana that some of the things stolen from his car, including a camera with movie film, had been found. The thieves had buried his things in a pile of sawdust behind a mill. An arrest was made, his film was safe, and he was now covering 80 miles a day. The tortoise, amongst a collection of hares, was feeling fine. His teammates, Livier and Hugh, were feeling less confident, huddling under oilskins as there was no top to the car. The two of them were soaking wet, miserable, freezing cold, and probably would have traded a dozen movie cameras for a dry place to sit. Perhaps it was the misery of his teammates, the gradual waning of his optimism at each unpredictable setback, or simply the total realization that at their current pace, reaching the ferry on April 1st was impossible. Whatever the reason, Charles Goddard decided in a clear violation of the rules to put the motoblock on a train and ship it all the way to San Francisco. Goddard knew this was wrong. He knew everyone would call this cheating. He was so embarrassed while getting his car on the train that he yelled and charged at a photographer who was attempting to take a photo of the motoblock while it was being lifted onto the train car. According to Fenster, Goddard didn't blame himself for being in last place or for violating the rules. He blamed the snowy roads of New York, the mud of Iowa, and the people of Indiana. The race officials wouldn't see it that way. As Goddard was loading his car onto a train, the leaders were now speeding their way across Wyoming, which was proving more difficult than anticipated. Snow runoff was washing down from higher altitudes in all directions, filling gullies and forcing detours over flooded areas with no bridges for crossing. Fenster wrote of it, quote, the line of the race route, which looked perfectly straight leading west from Laramie on a map, would be a drunken scribble if it were to show the actual route of a car finding its way through central and western Wyoming in March of 1908. Unquote. To cross country where roads didn't exist, the cars were to drive parallel to the Union Pacific Railroad tracks. Other times, the cars would follow wagon routes or stagecoach lines leading west. However, the Americans who were still in the lead found themselves in a predicament when they found the wagon roads in the mountains 10,000 feet up, or well over 3,000 meters, covered in 10 feet of snow. The Union Pacific Railroad allowed the flyer to drive over its tracks for 40 miles through what would otherwise have been an impassable stretch of mountainside. The railroad told the Americans they had four hours to cover those 40 miles. After that, they'd be dodging trains. They may have made it in four hours if the tracks weren't so disastrous on their tires. 
They suffered four flats, all of which took about a half hour each to repair. When a train nearly collided with the team, they were just able to pull themselves off the tracks right before they otherwise would have ended up a pile of twisted metal, blood, and bone in the snow. The scariest part of that journey was through a tunnel, which would have afforded them no exit if an oncoming train caught them by surprise. Of course, they suffered a flat tire at the entrance, but they were able to fix it in time to avoid any unhappy endings. When the Italians in the Zeus left Cheyenne, Wyoming, they were behind the Americans, but a week ahead of the three trailing teams. Well, except the motoblock, which was heading full speed on a train to California, while everyone else was busy wading through gullies and dodging trains. Not far out of Cheyenne, the Zeus became hopelessly stuck in a bog and began slowly sinking. By 3.30 a.m., the engine had completely disappeared in the mud. The team walked for miles to find help, which finally came in the form of a horse team who was able to pull them out before their car was lost entirely. Not one of these automobiles would have even made it out of New York without the help of horses. The Italians made it to the same spot in the mountains where the Americans had used train tracks four days earlier. When Sertori asked for permission to use the tracks as the Americans had, he was denied. The railroad stated it was no longer allowing competitors to use their railway, since the flyer had apparently done some damage to the railbed. Sertori, who was still angry with the help the Americans had received in Indiana, was now furious. The road, if you could even call it a road, through the mountain pass was so dangerous and so narrow that the Italian car scraped the side of the mountain 11,000 feet up with a sheer drop-off of empty sky right on the other side of their wheels. By the time the Italians crawled their way over the mountains, the Americans were 500 miles ahead of them. At this point, Sertori wanted the American car to be given some sort of penalty for the aid it had been given. Even if the American team hadn't intended to garner special permissions and favoritism, they clearly had, at least in Indiana and over the Rockies. They certainly were not the only car that had been allowed to use train tracks, or the only car to be helped out of ditches, water, and snow. All cars, at some point, had been given aid, and had even been allowed to use railroad tracks to cover ground in bad conditions. But Sertori wasn't considering that during his horrific mountain pass drive. Just as he was at the peak of his indignance, the Zeus broke apart into pieces while crossing over a train track in Kelton, Utah. Sertori nearly exploded with anger. The Zeus had to be shipped back to Ogden, Utah to be fixed, costing the Italians days. The race officials in Paris were realizing they would have to make some allowances on the route if the cars were going to make it to Alaska in time to drive over the Bering Strait. Now, once a team made it to San Francisco, they could ferry their car to Seattle, then ship it to Alaska by boat. If they could get to California in time, teams could leave San Francisco by March 25th, which would get them to Alaska by March 30th a full week earlier than the original April 1st plan. The first was still an option, but the ship took six days to make Alaska, which meant the teams that missed the freighter on the 30th would be a week behind. Also, teams could now decide whether to drive up through the center of California or via the coastal road, which would take them first through Los Angeles. Today, Los Angeles has a population of just under 4 million people, in 1908, there were 100,000. Originally, Los Angeles wasn't part of the race route, but the coastal road was an easier option, albeit longer than the central route, which crisscrossed through mountains. The mountainous central route was shorter, but riskier. The coastal route was longer, but it was easy driving. Compared to what the teams had gone through by this point, it was cake. Delicious, flat, temperate, cake. Los Angeles wanted to be part of the race. When the city heard the Thomas Flyer was just leaving Death Valley, 
Hundreds of cars lined the roads to LA, along with thousands of citizens eager to welcome them to the city. But the Americans decided to skip it. Instead, they floored it, bypassing LA entirely and arriving in San Francisco on March 24th. At this time in history, San Francisco was still recovering from the devastating Great Earthquake of 1906, which had killed an estimated 3,000 people. Entire blocks of the city were still nothing but piles of rubble, but restoration was well underway, and the city greeted the Americans with open arms. As the flyer was loaded onto a freighter for Seattle, its closest competitor, the Italian Zeust, was now 900 miles behind. The Italians did decide to take the coastal route, and when they drove into LA, the city celebrated them as if it was every holiday in all of history packed into one. An article in the New York Times wrote of the Italian car's reception that day, quote, The crew was almost mobbed. They were hugged, cheered, almost drowned with champagne, and pulled and hauled about till they broke away and sought refuge at their hotel, unquote. Despite their joyous reception, Sertori was still angry about the flyer having been given railroad access through the mountain pass. He told everyone it had taken him three days to do what the Thomas had done in one. This wasn't true. Sertori was able to make it over the pass in one day. But he decided to exaggerate a little bit in order to get his point across. The Italians made it to San Francisco on April 4th. To another round of celebration. When they arrived, they were surprised to hear the French motoblock was already there as well, since it had arrived by train some time before. The motoblock was now officially disqualified. It was out of the race. The officials in Paris concluded that skipping 2,000 miles of the route was enough of a reason to send Charles Goddard and the motoblock home. Sertori was angry to hear this, not because he was upset the motoblock had skipped 2,000 miles, but because the American car was ahead of him and hadn't been disqualified or penalized for using the mountain pass. He now told everyone it had taken him six extra days to cover that same pass. Again, it had just taken the one. The Americans were now on their way to Alaska by boat, and the Italians were in San Francisco waiting for the next freighter. St. Chaffre in the French de Dion was just now in Wyoming. Here, St. Chaffre revitalized some of the good sportsmanship that had been lost on the first leg of the journey. The Americans and Italians had dismantled all bridges they had erected to cross the rivers and snow runoff gullies in the west. St. Chaffre left the bridges his team built intact so the German Protoss wouldn't have to lose time on its way to California. I think it takes a special kind of integrity when even in the most frustrating, losing, and harrowing moments of competition, someone can still show kindness to a competitor. Cheers to St. Chaffray for that. The de Dion was now entering Death Valley. This is the hottest, lowest, and driest national park in the U.S. When our automotive protagonists drove through it, its designation as a national park was still 86 years away, which meant it was even more rugged and less maintained. At 282 feet below sea level, Death Valley is one of the hottest places on the planet. In 2018, it averaged a temperature of 108 degrees Fahrenheit, that's over 42 degrees Celsius, with daytime highs of 127 degrees almost 53 degrees Celsius, and the de Dion was lost somewhere in the middle of it. Signs of life were few and far between as the French car chugged its way through the valley. However, there was no lack of sand. Sand which grabbed, held, and finally consumed the wheels of the de Dion until they were almost completely sunk. Just when they thought themselves hopelessly stranded, the team heard the sound of bells. They followed the chiming, only to eventually realize hours later it wasn't the sound of bells at all. 
merely the wind meeting the sand in the valley. Still, they had walked for miles, and in their wandering, as aimless as it was, miraculously, they came upon a one-man camp. Its sole occupant agreed to ride his burrow to the nearest telegraph station to send out a signal for help. That message arrived at the same time as a dust storm, one nobody wanted to navigate in order to save St. Chaffre and his two teammates. No one except a man with a horse and a cart named Frank Hardigan. Braving a sandstorm to rescue the stranded motorists was the last thing Frank Hardigan would ever do. According to Fenster, an hour after he left into the storm, his horses came back to the stable with an empty cart. Frank's body was found near the road, his neck broken, probably from a fall when his horses had become frightened in the storm. Death had now claimed its first victim in the New York to Paris auto race. The next day, the team was rescued. St. Chaffre and his De Dion team decided to skip L.A. and head for San Francisco, the same way the Americans had. They arrived in time to join the Zeus, and with the Italians, they had several days to enjoy the city, as they couldn't ship out until April 10th. Charles Goddard of the now-disqualified Motoblock was still there, too. He'd been arrested shortly after making it to the city for going 50 miles per hour in a 10-mile-per-hour zone. Meanwhile, the Thomas Flyer was on a ship nearing Alaska, and the German Protoss was 3,400 miles behind them, slowly trudging up the Rocky Mountains. According to Fenster, when the Thomas Flyer arrived in Valdez, Alaska, there were only 20,000 people living in the entire state. Most of them were indigenous peoples or leftover prospectors and miners who had made their way north during the Yukon Gold Rush. When the Thomas Flyer rolled off the freighter, George Schuster claimed it was the first car the town had ever seen. In 1908, if you needed to cover any kind of distance in Alaska in the winter, you did so in a dog sled or a horse-drawn sleigh, not an automobile. The sheer absurdity of this leg of the race was now apparent. No car in 1908 could drive over a snow-covered Alaska, and now the spring thaw, which was creating slush and runoff, was also melting the Bering Strait, which the race committee understood now had never been anything but a pipe dream. Schuster sent a telegram to the race committee saying the only way a car could possibly cross Alaska was by having it dismantled and shipped via dog sled. The committee agreed. Alaska and the Bering Strait were out. The American team was told to ship their car back to Seattle. Now all the cars would cross the ocean on freighters to Vladivostok, Russia, a port town on the most southeastern tip of the country, just above what is now North Korea. However, there was still the problem of the Protoss and Köppen's German team. They were hopelessly behind. At this point, no one really believed they could finish, even if the German team could still somehow get to Siberia. At the rate they were going, it would take at least a month to make it to Seattle before they could ship out, if not more. The ground in Siberia would be nothing but unnavigable mud and melted ice by then. Saint Chaffre of the De Dion team had helped plan the original route, and he felt he had some authority in the matter of what to do with the Protoss. St. Chaffre sent the Germans a message, telling them they could ship their car via railroad to the coast, then send it across the ocean. The Motoblock had recently been disqualified for doing this very thing back in Iowa. Copen believed it was likely he too would be disqualified if he put his car on a train. But if he didn't, he'd be out anyway. And here, he kind of had a race official telling him it was okay to break the rules. So that's what he did. The Protoss was put on a train and was now heading to meet the other cars. Before the Zeus shipped out for Russia, Scarfoglio of the Italian team decided it was time to quit the race. Then he changed his mind. Then he changed it again. 
As his teammates were setting sail aboard a ship for Russia, he yelled to them from the dock that he had changed his mind one more time and would find a way to meet them in Asia. The Italian Zeust and French Dion shipped out on April 14th, the German Protos on April 19th, and the American Thomas Flyer, which had to sail back from Alaska first, was out to sea by April 21st. That meant the American car, which had kept its lead for thousands of miles, was now in last place. As a German, Copen and his Protos would be able to ship themselves right to Russia from the U.S., However, the other teams would need to meet with Russian consular officials to arrange for visas first. For that, they had to go to Japan. Once in Japan, the teams could choose to either take a boat around the island from Tokyo Bay, a 550-mile trip, or they could cut that journey more than in half and drive. After that, they'd ship out to Russia. These teams had shoveled their cars through the snow of the eastern U.S., inched up over mountains where there were no roads, caught their wheels in desert sand, braved sandstorms, all with no air conditioning, heaters, gas stations, or windshields. And they still thought they could drive 200 miles over a country where they didn't speak the language, know the terrain, or the way, faster than they could just ship themselves to the other side. Once again, our competitors decided to take their chances and go for a drive. Well, this episode turned out to be way longer than normal. I decided to give you a bit extra this time rather than slice and dice this story into any more pieces than I needed to. I honestly don't know if the next episode will be the last for this series, but that is what I'm going for. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed hearing part two of the historic New York to Paris auto race, and I hope you'll stay in the race with me to see it through. If you like the show, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. This really does help make the show more visible. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can still find me on Twitter for now, but we'll see how that goes. You can also find me on Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Background music and sound effects are licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay smart, stay safe, drive safe, especially during this holiday season. Until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.